Amen. Baruch Hashem. Another great Sabbath. It's another joyful Shabbat. Wonderful praise. Wonderful liturgy. Wonderful Torah reading. Wonderful everything. It's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. Ah, Baruch Hashem. I wanted to uh, uh, make a shameless plug for the Aliyah Day broadcast that uh, most of you are aware of. Yes, Rukishem. I want to encourage you, so some of you maybe not heard of it. I'm not sure how, but maybe you haven't heard of it. But every weekday morning at 9.30 Central Standard Time, I give a, a 30 to about 35-minute um, drosh, I guess you'd say, a lesson, a sure on the Aliyah for the day from the parasha of the week. And we do that in, well, several different formats, but primarily on Facebook. You can see it live. You can see my beautiful face every day at 9.30. Incidentally, on Sundays, we do it at 10.30 because, you know, Havdal is late. So uh, 10.30. And, uh, and then we also simultaneously record that to the podcast from Anchor. And I, I understand it goes out to everywhere uh, iTunes and all the other uh, NBC, ABC, CBS, all those places has it carries it. If you're wanting to look up or Google the podcast, you just Google Rabbi Mordecai Griffin podcast or Rabbi Mordecai Griffin anchor podcast, and the link will pop right up. And so I want to encourage you with that. And you can go back. You can either on Facebook, our Facebook page, of course, our on Facebook page, or the podcast. You can go back and listen to all the other ones that you may have missed. But I really want to encourage everybody to do that. Everybody who's watching, everybody who's here, because every single day of the week, there are loads of amazing insights. And I'm not saying because I'm teaching, I'm just saying because it's there. That it's, it's an amazing, and, and you're going to be so far advanced in your studies and in your learning. It's like going to online college, online yeshiva every day. And so some people are like, I don't really get it. I don't really understand. Well, how much do you study? Not very much. You watch the Aliyah? Never. Well, I'm just telling you, this is how you become a Zodic after the week. At the week is over, you're walking on water. Now you can clean the pool from the middle of the pool. But honestly, I want to encourage you all to watch the Aliyah day. Or podcast is wonderful. People listen to it in the car. Uh, they, li they listen to it at, uh, at work, at their lunch break. You know, when we were, when we were moving, uh, helping, I was helping at least a little bit, helping the Lugos move. We were listening to it on the Bluetooth speaker. Like, who is that guy? It's amazing. <laughs> he said, what? <laughs> so anyway, Megillah Ruth. Uh, let's say our blessing for the Torah study today that we're going to be doing. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and our offspring's offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. And we've been, as, as uh, we know, reading the Megillah of Esther. And so let us say, I'm uh, not Esther, excuse me, Ruth. 
So let us turn here to the Baraka for, we were reading Esther, so it's not my fault. Here we are. Baruchata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kidshano B'Mitzvotah Betzivano, El Mikra Megillah, Baruch Hashem. So, let me pull out my little uh, booklets here. Because as we're reading through, we're going to be reading from uh, Esther chapter 1 and verse 19 to I'm, Ruth. I'm so sorry. I've got Esther on my mind. She's always on my mind. Yeah. So uh, anyway, <laughs> Ruth chapter 1 and verse 19. Where is Ruth? She's, uh, Ruth says Esther who? Ruth Ruth chapter nine, I mean for chapter one, verse nineteen. Well, I'll get it right in a minute. There we go. Let's begin reading actually in verse eighteen. We're going to read through chapter two and verse four today. We'll begin in verse eighteen just to give us a running start there. So it says, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, this is talking about Naomi now seeing that Ruth is determined to go with her. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped arguing with her, and the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass, when they arrived in Bethlehem, the entire city was tumultuous over them, and the women said, could this be Naomi? So one of the reasons it says that they said that is because Naomi, when she left, she was a lady who, who had been, while she was in town, riding around in a fancy carriage. She had a Cadillac Escalade carriage, and she had gotten all of her clothes from Chanel, and she was wearing coach bags and things like that. And when she came, when she came back, she had none of that. She didn't even have, she didn't even have shoes. Her and, her and Ruth were barefooted because they could not even afford shoes. And so they said... Could this possibly be the lady who left? Moreover, it says uh, the entire city was tumultuous, tumultuous over them. Why? Because the day that they came, and this is significant, I think, prophetically. The day that they returned to Bethlehem was the day of the counting of the Omer, the day of the reaping of the Omer. So there was the second day of Pesach. And all the inhabitants of the surrounding towns were assembled there to watch the ceremony. Now, why is that important prophetically? Because it was the Omer, the day of the Omer, that was the day of resurrection. That Mashiach came out, came out as it were, came out of Bethlehem and began what would be to, to initiate the new, the renewed covenant. So we have the Mashiach coming out, but we then, now we have the regenerator of the Mashiach coming in. So that there is something that happens significantly on the, the festival of the counting of the Omer. It is the mother of the Mashiach coming in the day that the Mashiach would go out. So they said, could this be Naomi? Uh, by the way, it says here that... Um, the sages say, see how precious proselytes are to God. Once she decided to convert, the scripture ranked her equal with Naomi. Why? Because it says the two of them went on. And therefore, it says, when it, it, it says, Shetechem, 
The two of them is mentioned to stress the determination of Ruth, who, although she was leaving her home, her birthplace, and her kindred, marched on with the same strength and soul of purpose as Naomi, and they went, the two of them, as if they were one. And the scripture accounts it as if she was equal to Naomi. It says, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, pleasant one. Call me Mara, embittered one. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I was full when I went away, but Hashem has brought me back empty-handed. Now, to verse 22, it says here, um, or, I'm sorry, it continues, it said, Why should you call me Naomi? Hashem has testified against me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Verse 22 says, And so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the fields of Moab. Now the sages point out the structure of this sentence is a little bit confusing and lends itself to interpretation. Because it says, And so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the field of Moab. So the question is, who returned? Naomi returned. You would say, naturally, Naomi, why? Because she had been there before, now she was going back. Ruth, Ruth never been to Israel. She was born in Moab, and so how could she be returning? But yet it says, who returned from the fields of Moab? So the sages say, who was it that returned? The answer is, ultimately, both are returning. One was returning. See, this is a very beautiful picture of what the, the gospel was intended to do. The gospel was not intended to create two different classes of people. You have the Messianic Jew and you have the Messianic Gentile. The Messianic Jew keeps Torah, even though they don't, but they keep Torah. And then the Messianic Gentile is not allowed to keep Torah, told they're not supposed to. And besides, it's our land, not your land, but you're welcome to rent here. And what the gospel intended to communicate was that everybody is returning. And the sages point this out, and some of the commentators point this out. Why? Because the reality is, is that Israel was given the Torah at Mount Sinai, correct? Correct. They accepted it, right? They did. But prior to that, the Torah had been offered to every nation. And the nations rejected it. Now the very fact that God offered it to them means he wanted them to accept it. You don't offer somebody something you don't want them to take. Y'all just missed that. Y'all was sleeping. Y'all missed it, see? This is why you got to think critically. If God offers you something, it's because he wants you to take it. Therefore, if we say, and the sages did say, that God offered the Torah to the nations, that means that his ultimate will was that they would abide in his Torah. Because God is not going to offer somebody and say, you want this? Yeah, take, nope, just kidding, just kidding. I don't want you to have it. I was just kidding. So when the nations come to Torah, they are actually returning to it. Moreover, so therefore... Ruth was returning to Bethlehem, even though she'd never been there before. This is why when you go to Israel for the first time, you've never been there in your life, you feel like you're home. Now, I 
am a native Texan, born and raised right here. I've traveled to many places, not all over the world, but I've been to many places. And no place I've ever been to has ever felt like home. And I don't care if I was in California or North Carolina or any other state that I've been to or some of the other countries I've been to. No other place felt home to me except one place. And I mean this, God is my witness, Israel. And that's because that's where it all began. Let me tell you why we feel that way. Why every human being feels this way. Because every soul that was ever created was, were all created at once, and we all existed in Ghana Den, and Ghana Den was in Jerusalem, what we now know as Jerusalem. See, the reality is, is that all of us are the same age. Some of us have been on earth longer than others. Some people have preceded us, and some of us are going to come after us, but the fact is that every soul in this room is all the same age. We're all the same age. This is why sometimes you can have somebody who's much younger than the people they're teaching, or you can have somebody vice versa. It doesn't matter. Why? Because all of our souls are the same age. That's why we can't get all... This is another reason we can't get prideful. We're just showing people around, you know, we, it's, like, it's like we're wearing a space suit, and we're like, what? I've been on Mars longer than you have, but let me tell you, don't go over there. But we've all been on Earth, you see. So it says they returned. The subject it says here of who is returning is not clear. According to Ibn Ezra, it refers to Naomi. Egris Shemuel comments it refers to Ruth, despite the fact that she could not have returned having never been in Eretz Israel. So Ruth entered Eretz Israel with the same burning desire as did Naomi, the same burning desire as did Naomi. So Scripture describes it as she returned, as if she had lived there before and it had been her birthplace. She, she returned there as if that had been her birthplace, as if that's where she was from. That was her hometown. And notice it's Bethlehem. Notice that the quintessential, see everything is prophetic in Scripture. Notice that the quintessential convert, we, when we've, I mean, we've, we, we've, we've already seen other converts like Jethro and we've seen Batya, but the one that's held up as the quintessential, the one that we, is, is held up as the example, the one from, from whom we, we receive uh, in Yevamot 47b, uh, we receive the laws of the proselyte and what we're supposed to teach them and how we're supposed to convert them. Notice it, 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 it comes from a, a girl who goes to Bethlehem to teach us a lesson that that the whole conversion of the world is going uh, to initiate from Bethlehem. What does God think about converts? This is just worth saying from, this comes from Mayam um, Loez. Uh, As it says there in verse 19, the two of them came in. They were equal in purpose and determination. The two of them. See, the sages never made a distinction between the convert and the born Jew. The minute you become a convert, the day, the day you come out of the water, you are a Jew. And there's no difference. Or you can't say, well, you're born Jewish, so you're more Jewish than the convert. That's not true. It's not true at all. The idea that you could be in covenant and not be a Torah-observant person is, is not a concept. That is a concept so ridiculous, 
so silly, so idiotic, and so foreign to Judaism, I can't, I can't even express, I have enough words to express. Welcome to the covenant. Great. The covenant rules are Torah, but we don't want you to keep them. Because when you're in covenant, you don't keep the covenantal rules. Only theology can come up with something like that. So it says here, our sages infer from here how greatly God cherished the proselyte. Once Ruth had resolved to convert, the scripture holds her to be equal to the righteous and to the noble Naomi. So the story continues. They came in at the beginning of the barley harvest. Chapter 2. Naomi had a relative through her husband, a man of substance, from the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go out to the field and glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose eyes I find favor. Now, the reason that Ruth said this was because of her immense humility in love. She, did, she knew that her mother-in-law had been a famous, wealthy woman when she left. And her, mother has, her mother-in-law has come to grips with the fact that she's a sinner, that she is deserving of, of her situation because her husband decided to leave, but she didn't protest. And she knows, and the sages talk about this, she knows that the ultimate reason why they left is they did not want to give their money to the poor. They didn't want to pay the tithe. They didn't want to give sadaka. They didn't want to give offerings. Because, you know, that's, that means I got to give money. Not all your money. You know, and you're not allowed, in Judaism, you're not allowed to give more than 20%. That's the cutoff. 20% is the max you're allowed to give in Jewish law. Did you know that? It's the max you're allowed to give. You're supposed to give at least 10%. You can give up to 20%, but beyond that, the sages say, nope, you do that, and it becomes financially irresponsible. Isn't that amazing? No one's ever told you that before, have they? You can live on the 10%. Just give me the 9%. Ah. No, seriously. So they didn't want to give that. So they left. So she knows it's all on her, but Ruth, says, listen, and by the way, I, I said last week, I made, a, I made an error. I said Ruth was in her 20s. She was, she was in her 40s. And, and uh, Boaz was 80. He did all right. <laughs> so Ruth says, listen, let me go glean in the field. Let me go glean in the field because it's unbecoming of you to have to do so. And so... Naomi allowed her to do, do that, not because she saw her as a degraded person, um, but rather because she understood um, that she was acting out of humility and love. And so she, she said to her, go, my daughter. And the sages point out the very fact that she called her her daughter indicates her great affection for her and the fact that she accepted her as part of her full family. Reminds me of a story. I have a, I have a book. And, and again, in case you're just tuning in, the Megillah of Ruth is all about conversion. It's all about what God feels about the convert. It's all this whole story, the heartbeat of this whole story is about the nations coming to, under the wings of the Shekinah. So anyway, I was reading a, in this book. There's a book I have, and it's, it's a, a book from people who have converted, and they're 
their stories, why they did it, how they did it, etc. And um, there's a story, a story <coughs> of a Jewish mother, and she's got a daughter-in-law who is um, apparently from one of the Asian nations, I forget which, Vietnam or Philippines or something like that. And she wanted to marry her son, and so she made a decision to convert for the sake of heaven, but, you know, also she's, she's getting married, and so she became fully Jewish through conversion. So one day the mother-in-law, the, the, the son's mother, was at a function, and she ran into one of her friends, and her friend said, I heard that your son married a, an Asian woman. And she says, no, she, he married a Jewess. You see? That's the heart of Judaism. Going back to Ma'am Loez and back to verse 21 for just a second, where it says, Naomi says, I went out full and empty as the Lord, re I, I went out full and empty as the Lord returned me. Why should you call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Ma'am Loez points out that the people of Bethlehem, the reason they referred to her as Naomi, the righteous, is because they understood the principle that suffering that God visits upon the righteous is in, is, is in an order to increase their reward. So Naomi said, the Almighty has afflicted me, but really in her heart of hearts, Ma'am Loez points out, she realized that what she called affliction was only to me. That is, according to her human perception. But in truth, everything God does, everything God does, everything God does is good. Now, so we have to understand that reality, and this is a hard reality for us to grasp, but everything God does is good. And in the moment, we, we oftentimes don't see that. We have people that go through difficult times in our synagogue from time to time. And I had somebody tell me recently, as I was encouraging them, they said, it's, it's been tough, and i got to be honest with you, I'm, I'm, a little, I'm, I'm a little downtrodden, a little scared. And I said, I know you are. That's why you need somebody in your mishpah to tell you it's going to be okay. God knows that. That's why you need people around you. This is why you can't do it on your own. You say, well, I don't, because in, in those moments, you don't have faith. And God knows that we're all human. That's why you need brothers and sisters to come alongside you and say, it's going to be okay. What you have to do is train yourself not to be that Eeyore that says, no, it's not. It's not going to be okay. How can you say that? You have to understand that everything God does is good. We don't understand it. It says right here, thus our sages teach, in this world, for happy events we recite the blessing, Baruch Hatov Ve Hatovi. Hatif, exalted is he who is good and does good. And on the sad occasions, we say, Baruch Dainamet, blessed is the true judge. And in the future, however, we will recite only, exalted is he who is good and does good. Why? For we will realize that our suffering was the source of our good fortune. As it is written, I will rejoice over them and do good for them, and I will plant them in this land in truth with my whole heart, and with my whole soul. Jeremiah 32, 41. We have to understand that. In addition, Ma'am Loez says, 
that going back to the concept of the, of, of the convert, on account of Ruth, it says, who stayed with her and brought her happiness, Naomi began to rise out of the depths of misery she had reached in Moab and to return to her former self. Did you, what, I, what that means is, is that converts help Israel. Converts help Israel. For one thing, let's just be honest. When we're not out seeking people to bring them under the wings of the Shekinah, that is the surefire way to become self-centered. When we're seeking people and we're seeking to promote God's goodness to the to the to whosoever's, that is a that is a perfect way to get the eyes off of our own self, out of our own misery. See, when Naomi was going to Bethlehem, if she had been traveling by herself, she would have been focused entirely on her situation, what I did wrong and how I blew it. And look, I don't have any money. That coach bag I had a pawn, that Chanel jacket I had to give away. They repoed my Cadillac Escalade coach. Repoed it. Two horsepower coach. Gone. <laughs> but instead, all the way to Bethlehem, she was busy teaching Ruth how to be a good Jew. And now instead of focusing on her trouble and misery, she was focused on making somebody else a servant of the living God. That's how we get out of our misery. That's how we get out of our own circumstance. When you're busy helping others, you can't focus on, what's wrong, on, on your own problems. That's why God says, make my will your will, and I'll make your will my will. In other words, while you're seeking the lost, I'll help you out. It says, although Ruth was now a fully a Jew, she still, she's still called the Moabite. Why? Reflecting the fact that her Moabite origin enabled her to guide Naomi safely out of Moab. She wasn't called a Moabite because Scripture thought she was a Moabite. It says here, in another. this is another section I just want to share with you. It's so good. The Scripture provides, he says, the extra emphasis that Ruth returned from the fields of Moab, calling attention to Ruth's greatness. She had separated herself from the stinginess and depravity, thank you, honey, from the stinginess and depravity of Moab to cleave to the Jewish people, even though it meant leaving the life of a royal princess. I'm going to share something to you. Listen to this. You realize that Naomi said to Ruth, go back to your father's house. She was the daughter of the king of Moab. She could have gone back to royalty. She looked and she had a choice between royalty and poverty. Royalty and no shoes. Royalty and picking up scraps in the field. Royalty and going back to Bethlehem with a, a woman who's been shamed because of her sin. Royalty, and she's a convert. She's a Moabite. She's, she doesn't have any pedigree. There's nothing. When she goes back to Bethlehem, she, there's no pedigree she can point to. She's just, she's a woman with no history. But Ruth knew something. She said, in royalty, there's no king of kings. In poverty, there's the man riding on a donkey who saves the world. 
And if I have to just, and she looked at the menu, if I just have to eat a, I just get to eat a little kernel of barley. Because, you know, barley, that's what the animals eat. I get to eat a little barley. I'd rather eat barley in the court of the king of kings than to feast on swine and beef and all that good stuff in the court of Hasatan, cursed be he. What do we, how do we relate to Ruth? And I say we, I say all of us. Because see, every Jew, here's the reality. Here's the, the, the little secret. Every Jew is a convert. Some people ask, I'm Jewish. Do I have to convert at Sar Shalom? Did Moses convert at Sinai? Yes. So there's your answer. You say, he converted at Sinai. Where does it say that, Talmud? Midrash? Everybody went through the mikvah at Sinai. The sages say when we left Egypt, we were all idolaters, every one of us. See, God is an equal opportunity employer. Even the, yeah, Rebbe seems right. Even the Kohen had to mikvah. You say, do I have to? I'm, I'm Jewish. Do I have to convert? Well, I tell you what, I went so fast to that water, I dove in. <laughs> I, make, I, I went under seven times. I've been back to Israel many, many times, and every time I go, I go to the, I go to the Jordan. Amen. To the Jordan. Every time. I've been born again many times. Someone said, well, when were you born again, brother? I don't know which date you want. Yeah, this morning. She had separated herself from that, from that luxury life. Hence the import they came at the beginning of the barley harvest. When God directed Abraham to the land of Israel, he said, lech lecha, literally go to yourself. Go to yourself. He was calling Abraham back to himself. For Abraham's soul was rooted in the holiness of the land. Ruth's soul likewise stemmed from the holiness of the land of Israel, but had been uh, diverted into the impurity of Moab. Now it returned to its source. So strong, he writes, was the pull to return to her source that Ruth came to the Holy Land even though her Moabite origin virtually precluded her the possibility of marrying there. See, she, when she went to the Holy Land, was under the impression, she was under the impression that you can convert as a Moabite, but you're not going to be allowed to marry into the community. So basically, not only do you have no past, but you will have no future. You will just be you. You'll be in the kingdom of God, but, but there's no... Do you understand? She traded it all in for covenant. She traded, she, she didn't think it anything to leave her, holy, her royal status to come down and take upon herself the humility. She said, I have no future. And people, I'm going to tell you something. When you look at it that way, when you say, God, I don't care if I have a past or a future, I just want your presence. Amen. 
And God said, I'm sorry, did you say you, you weren't concerned with the future? No, God, I just want your present. And God says, guess what? Here's Boaz. Not only will I give you a future, but you're going to have the Mashiach sit on the throne forever. Because you were willing, Ruth, to leave your throne, your son will sit on my throne forever and ever and ever. Friends, too many times we choose not to be Jewish over stupid, silly little things, dumb little things, because we don't want to change our menu, we don't want to change our diet, our stomachs become our God, we don't want to change our attire, because we don't want to change our holiday schedule, because we don't want to inconvenience our employer on Shabbat, because we don't want to inconvenience our friends on, on Shabbat. And for all of those silly, dumb little things, we say, we don't want you, God. We like it down here. But if you don't mind when we die, please bring us into your kingdom. Because we want to be an undocumented member of the covenant. Because we want to come in, we want all the benefits without the responsibilities. That's what it means, really. We want all the benefits without the responsibilities. So strong was the pull to return to her source that she came, even without the possibility of being married. And our sages comment, it was she who returned from the fields of Moab. God was waiting for two pearls to come from Moab and from Ammon. And for their sake, he forbade Israel to war with those nations. It now became apparent that Ruth was the long-awaited pearl. So this is why I said a while back I was talking about the pearl of great price. And I said that that pearl of great price has been interpreted forever to mean the gospel of the kingdom. It's not. The pearl of great price and the treasure in the field is you. It's not the kingdom. It's you. This, this is confirmed by what the rabbis say about Ruth. She was that pearl. You are the pearl. God is seeking you. It says here one last thing about Ruth and coming in. It says, Because Ruth felt lonely and strange, she added a word of encouragement. Do not think of yourself as a Moabite. This is what Naomi says to her. But as my daughter... I allow you to go out into the field and glean for me only because of necessity forces me to, for I cherish and esteem you like a daughter. The expression, my daughter, does not necessarily indicate that Ruth was a young girl. In fact, our sages say she was 40 years old. The extreme poverty that forced Ruth to pick in the field like any pauper was no coincidence either, but was intended to be a foreshadowing of that poor man riding on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 who would descend from her, that is, the Mashiach of Israel. We're not done. I've not yet begun to drosh. Listen, every, this is why God is good. He's like, look, the reason I did this, the reason I have you acting like you're acting, like this poor person in the field, is because one day your descendant is going to come in come in to Jerusalem from Bethlehem and he's going to have nothing that 
He's not going to look like it. He's going to look like a pauper. How can this be the king? How can this be the king that we've waited on all these years? But only to, for people to find out that he, in fact, is the king who rules over kings. Blessed be he. I just want to share a few things from the Midrash Shabbat, things that we didn't get a chance to get to. Pardon my little flags. Our Naomi's just rolling her eyes. She's like, Lord, help him. Help him, Lord. Pray for me, Naomi. I want to read to you something from the Midrash Rabbah 2.16. It says, turn back, turn back. Turn back, my daughter, go. This is in reference to the first chapter where she's telling the daughters to turn back. It says here, Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachmani said in the name of Rabbi Yudan, son of Rabbi Hanina, in three places it is written, turn back. In verse 8, turn back. In verse 11, turn back. In verse 12. This corresponds to the three times we push away a would-be proselyte. But if he presses beyond this, we accept him as a candidate for conversion. Rabbi Yitzhak said, Scripture states, No stranger ever slept outside. I open my doors to the street, Job 31:32. From here we learn that a person should always push away with the left hand and draw close with the right. Now what does that mean? It means that the proper way to deal with a would-be convert is to push him away generally with the left or weaker hand, and then if he persists in his request after three such rebuffs, to embrace him leveling with the right or strong hand. All this is to intimate the, Job, the verse in Job. No stranger, that is no would-be convert, ever slept outside. That means we do not reject him entirely. I open my doors to the street. That means ultimately he is ushered into the house of Israel with love. The reason that converts are gently pushed away three different times, traditionally anyway, is to test their resolve. To test their resolve. Because, as we said last week, this life is a life. This life is a commitment. This life is, is something that's going to be a challenge. This life, you're going to have to navigate. And sometimes it's small things. Sometimes it's big things. How many people have written me or asked me over the years, Rabbi, what do you think this, this, uh, this uh, program I want to do or this job I want to take or this class I'm, I'm looking at in college or whatever it is, they're saying they require me to come in on, on Saturday. What do you think I should do? And they give me the big things. If I go there, then I get this opportunity and blog, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think I should do? And it's like, you know, you know the answer already. It's not time to, not, the answer is you just go to them and tell them I can't come in. On, see, here's the beautiful thing. We see the list. It's like, oh, they tell me I have to come. What you do is you go in and say, I can't come for religious reasons. What kind of uh, alternative program can we make? And when they say, we can't make any alternative program for you at all. That's not good for them. It's religious discrimination. Make, it is. They have to make reasonable accommodation. Right? But the point is, you have to look at that with resolve and say, I will not work or go to school or whatever on Shabbat, period. It's not ever going to happen. It will never happen, 
ever happen. Ever. Period. It's not going to happen. It's off the table. It's a complete non-starter. But when you have it in your mind, well, maybe I will if the carrot is good, then the enemy is going to be pull out the bag of carrots. And remember that one mitzvah leads to another and one sin leads to another. Just always remember that. So the source for dissuading a convert actually comes from the book of Ruth as well. Remember I said last week that Orpha is the mother of Goliath. I want to give you the source for that also because that's a very important lesson that we learned last week, that we have Orpha who kissed Naomi, loved Naomi, kissed her and walked away, and we have Ruth, who we've been talking about, who also kissed Naomi but embraced her. And I said that Orpha gave birth to Goliath what happened to Goliath? He was ultimately, ultimately slain by David. So there's a lot to say about Orpha. So we have in Midrash Rabbah, Ruth 2, section 20. It says, they raised their voices and wept. So it says, this word, is, is this word for uh, wept is missing an olive, thus indicating that their strength was sapped because they were walking and crying all the same time. Rabbi Bekyara said in the name of Rabbi Yitzhak, Orpha walked 40 paces with her mother-in-law, and as a reward for the retribution, as a reward for those 40 paces, she was given retribution for her son Goliath, who was suspended 40 days, as it says, the Philistine would approach the Israelites early in the morning and early in the evening, as and he would... <clears throat> and he would mock them and he'd present themselves before them for 40 days. 1 Samuel 17, 16. So it's saying here that Goliath every day for 40 days would come out in the morning and come out in the evening and mock God, mock Israel, and challenge Israel. Now why does it say morning and evening? Because he came out in the morning Shema and he came out in the evening Shema. Right when Israel was de 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 declaring rather that God was one, the only one, Goliath would come out and say, no, he's not. And he did that for 40 days because his mother, Orpha, walked 40 paces with Naomi. Incidentally, when Goliath came out and said, send me your man, the sages point out in Tractate Sota that he was asking for God. He was a challenging God. And God sent him the son of man. That's what it says. It sent him, they, he sent him the son of man, David, who was the son of Ruth. So the son of the one who cleaved came to war against the, the son of the one who left. And so it says in Tractate Sota, um, 42b is where we find this. Let me read the a comment here from that tractate. It says, Ruth wished to cleave to the divine presence. She therefore remained with her mother-in-law and converted to Judaism. <clears throat> See, when you want to cleave to Israel, the only option you have, you understand this, the only option you have if you want to be a part of Israel is to convert. That's the only option you have. The only option you have if you want to be a part of Israel is to convert. There's no other option. 
There is no other option. Somebody's going to say to me, well, you don't understand, Rabbi, because you don't understand history. You don't understand that there were the, uh, there were the, uh, the, the, the God-fearers, and you don't understand that there, there were the, uh, uh, the Ger-Toshav. If only you knew, Rabbi, if only you understood the Ger-Toshav talks about it in the Talmud. There were Gentiles who lived in the land among Israel, and, and they were just the seven Noahiders. No, 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 no idol worshiper, but seven Noah. If, I, I wish you knew that, Rabbi. You wouldn't teach what you teach. Uh, well, actually, you'll be surprised to learn that I've read about every historical reference that I know of that is like the cream of the crop on that kind of stuff. When it comes to God-fearers, that, they're an anomaly. We have no idea, really. That was a, a completely undefined people group. You know what I, I relate to that? And, and this is not just my opinion. This is scholars that say this. The, the God-fearers, in my view, based on what I've read, were basically like Zionistic Christians today. They certainly weren't considered part of the covenant by any stretch of the imagination. But they were considered friends because they weren't trying to kill us. And they had some level of involvement with the God of Israel, but not 100%. They weren't 100% on board, <clears throat> which was their choice. Key word, choice. The uh, Ger Toshav never existed, ever, in history. It was a complete academic exercise. Scholars agree, all of them agree, that it was a simply, it, it was a what-if scenario. What if we had a Gentile living among us? How could we make it okay for them to live among us and still not be a convert? And you have the Gertoshav concept, but it never actually existed. Why? Because whenever a Gentile came in and wanted to live among Jews, they got converted. Because A, we actively sought converts, not just actively, we enthusiastically sought converts historically, and B, it didn't make any sense. And if you were a Gentile and you wanted to come live among Israel, why would you stop halfway and go, well, you know, I just, this is as far as I want to go right here. I see that the finish line for blessing is over there, but I choose to stop right here in the, in the, in the middle of nowhere's land. Why would you do that? didn't make any sense. That's why it never happened. So it says here, Ruth wished to cleave to divine presence. She therefore remained with her mother-in-law and converted to Judaism. And remember, Ruth's the example, right? Ruth is the mother of who? I forget. David, Mashiach, Yeshai, Obed. Right, example, right? I'm just going, I'm going with the example thing. So the example to us converted. Orpha, who was also known as Haraf, allowed herself, allowed herself. I want you to look, this is the notes from the Talmud, allowed herself to be convinced not to convert. Allowed herself to be convinced not to convert. What happened with Orpha was, and this is what I learned reading the Midrash, she got on Facebook <laughs> and she posted that she was going to go through conversion. And there was a couple of Facebook profiles that 
she doesn't know them. They're just friends on Facebook. And they've given her a bunch of likes on her posts and stuff. And hearts sometimes. <laughs> and uh, therefore, their opinion matters because if you like my stuff, I'm going to listen to you. Come on, man. Uh, <clears throat> and so when Orpha got on Facebook and she put, I'm going to convert to Judaism, LOL, what do you think? Then all of a sudden, these scholars on Facebook that we don't know who they are and they have no congregation or no rabbi, they have no accountability, they may not even be a, a real profile. But they swooped in. And they said, if you convert, we will unfriend you. And Orpha just couldn't take it anymore because Facebook was her life. She got up in the morning and grabbed that phone. She was doing the, she was, uh, you know, it was T-Moabite service back then. <laughs> so she, she allowed herself to, to be convinced not to convert. Man, I just want, I just want to read that like 20 times. She, it didn't say that God... See, it's critical. We're reading a comment from the Talmud. God, it didn't say God didn't want her to convert. It says she convinced herself. The serpent said, Do you want to say that? Did God say that? By the way, when somebody engages you on Facebook and you don't know who they are, ask them who's their rabbi. Just ask them. Like somebody who actually knows them, not just my, my rabbi's on YouTube. His name is, you know, Ms. Rocky or whatever. I mean, no, I'm just, who's your rabbi? Like somebody that knows your name, knows who you are. Saw a picture of you and say, yep, I know that guy. I'm just saying, my gosh. But anyway, I'm, I don't want to get off on that. I digress. Um... She kissed her mother-in-law and returned to her former life because she spurned Judaism. This gets brutal. Because she spurned Judaism, listen, because she spurned Judaism, the Mashiach didn't come from her. What would have happened if Ruth and Orpha would have come to, together with the same heart? Who knows what God would have done? With Orpha. But because she spurned Judaism, she was not able to say, that's my son sitting on the throne. Instead, she said, that's my son with his head cut off in the battlefield. He was really big. He was a big guy, but look at him now. Yeah, all her sons actually were dead on the battlefield. Because she spurned Judaism. It was decreed that her four sons would fall by the hands of David because of that, it says here. And they would fall by the hands of David, who happened to be a, serve, a, a descendant rather of Ruth. All because, it says, all because she, she kissed or, uh, Naomi and walked away. It says here in, in uh, Tractate Sota 42b, 
Why did Goliath and his brothers fall to David? For it is written in Ruth 1.14, And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law and departed, but Ruth cleaved to her. That's why David won! Which should encourage all of us that your decision to follow the God of Israel is one day going to allow a David to slay a Goliath. Amen. Hakadosh Baruch Hu said, let the one, I'm sorry, it says, he says, <clears throat> let them come, the sons of the woman who kissed, and, and let them fall by the hand of the son of the woman who cleaved. That's what God said. That's how he viewed everything. You know, I was thinking about this whole idea of, of conversion and the Jewish heart towards it and what Jews want. And, and um, I've, Conversion is, is my thing. It's what I've studied. It's why I've read. I've read the history of proselytization and Judaism, many, many books on the topic. And taught, had, anyway, it's been extensive. So I can tell you that Judaism has always sought converts, even, even during persecution. But we find, if, we, if you're not convinced, we find in our sitter, we say the bracha, us gentlemen do, every morning when we're donning the talit gadol. We find God's heart towards converts when we're donning the talit gadol. So if we, we look at the bracha after we put on the talit, we, we say the blessing, we put on the, the talits over our head, and we say, how precious is your kindness, O God. The sons of men take shelter in the shadow of your wings. It didn't say the Jewish men. It said the sons of men. And the word for son there in Hebrew, it says, Mayakar hasdekelehim uvene adom. Adom. See, this is a, 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 God is showing you in the morning. When you're, when you're davening, Shakarit, he says, I want to remind you that I'm looking for, the, I'm looking for mankind to come under my wings. I'm not looking for a predator. Don't go around asking somebody, who's your mama? It's not going to be important who their mama is. It's going to be important who their daddy's going to be. It's me. There is an insight here about the rapid decline of Orpha. And this is instructive as well. Orpha left her mother, mother-in-law, because she rejected God. She rejected Judaism. She rejected being a convert. She rejected Torah. Now I want you to understand something. There's a very instructive lesson here. Something I've said for years. And people are like, oh, Rabbi. Orpha lived in a Jewish home. She was the wife of a Jewish man. She had a Jewish father-in-law and a Jewish mother-in-law. And so she lived a life of Torah even though she herself wasn't a convert. And when it came time for her to make the commitment, her eyes are wide open. She's not just some Gentile that didn't know anything about anything. She'd been living in a Jewish world. She knew what Hanukkah was all about. Well, not really, because I had a happy habit. But she knew what all the festivals were like. Caught you, didn't I? You were like, oh, yeah, she did. <laughs> Hasbunians, that happened yet. But she knew what it was like to live in a sukkah and all that kind of stuff. She, she'd, been, she'd done all that. And when it came time, see, she, she was offered the covenant, but she'd been given a test drive of it. And when she came time to receive the covenant, she said, no, thank you. 
Now, what happened is, once she left Torah, left Judaism, which is synonymous, she went back to her old way of life, but she couldn't fully go back to her old way of life. See, we just think that we can throw Yeshua under the bus, throw the Torah under the bus, and we can just go back and things are going to be like they were, and that's not how it plays out. And so there's a whole insight here about the, the rapid decline of Orpha. Because she went back and she became a promiscuous woman. Bad things happened. And then next thing you know, she's given birth to Goliath. How did that happen? What went wrong? How did Orpha go from this, this, this virtuous woman who was willing to walk with, her, with Naomi and hug her and kiss her? What happened to that woman who was on the brink of, of godliness? And then next thing you know, she's free-falling to nothingness. And it says here that the day Orpha resolved to sacrifice her royal hearth and home to embrace the Jewish land and people, but Naomi sought to dissuade her, painting a bleak picture of the hardships she would, she would, she would confront. Orpha quailed and turned back, and everything changed. No more would she share the destiny with Naomi no more life as part of the Jewish people. Her world and aspirations had come crashing down. She confronted the reality of her own inability to withstand the challenge, and she became disillusioned and demoralized. This sudden upheaval caused her to lose all psychological and moral equilibrium, and from that point on, there was no limit to the extent of her, of her fall. <clears throat> Rabbi Haim concludes this section here and says, there's a vital lesson to be learned. Disappointments and failures are almost, all, are, are, are almost inevitable to be a part of life. But one must strive at all costs to meet them with equanimity, with, with mental calmness, with composure, with an evil, even temper, and not with bewilderment. Bewilderment is the powerful tool of the evil inclination. With equanimity, the fall can be arrested and contained, and the person can then rise again to the former heights and go even beyond those heights. To that point, there's another insight we learn from the lesson that Naomi was teaching to Ruth. She said to her at the end of their discussion that there's a prohibition against idolatry, and the rabbis say, why would she say that? Because if we embrace the 613 mitzvot of Hashem, naturally we have turned away from idolatry. So why would she tell her, we, by the way, we don't follow idols? That seems counterintuitive to, of course we don't, that's why I'm here. The Gemara answers this question and says, one who is gripped by anger and tears garments or breaks utensils or scatters money, in other words, they fly into a rage, is considered as one who has worshipped an idol. This is learned from the verse, there shall be no strange God within you, nor shall you bow before an alien God, from Psalm 81.10. What is the strange God that's within the body of a person? It's the evil inclination, Shabbos 105b says. Complete allegiance to God does not mean only that one may not bow before an external idol. One must not allow himself to be so controlled by feelings as to act illogically and destructive. One who can be goaded by his anger to the point that he is out of control 
is considered to be serving an idol within himself, and his actions cannot be said to be under the sole authority of God's holy Torah. After Naomi informed Ruth of the 613 commandments, including the prohibition against idolatry, she communicated to Ruth that there is another all-encompassing aspect of service to God that is demanded of one counted among the Jewish nation. We are enjoined from serving the strange God that lurks within our own hearts. In other words, when we say things like, God knows my heart, we're actually told, don't serve that idol. All that is is idolatry. Making stuff up on our own. It's forbidden for us to serve that idol. I want to share one last thing before we conclude. One last thing. The sages point out in Midrash or Ba'a Ruth 2.22 that when it says, Ruth said, do not, and the word here is tifgevi, tifgevi, do not make me want to leave you or turn back from you. It says here, what is the meaning of do not tifegivli? Ruth was saying to Naomi, do not commit a sin through me. Do not incur punishment and affliction, because that word means affliction on my account, causing me to leave you and to turn back from you, to go back to my Gentile way of life, is a sin, and it will bring affliction to you. It says here, for in any event by intention is to convert to Judaism, better that I do it through you than through somebody else. In other words, when you have somebody standing in front of you and you implore them, listen, you're a Messianic Gentile. Go back to your holidays. Go back to your church. Go back to your non-kosher eating. Go back to whatever. Just make sure and mail your checks to me. But otherwise, go back. All that's going to do is bring affliction and hardship on you because they're going to convert and you, it says here in the footnotes, are going to miss the mitzvah. Now, what mitzvah are we talking about? Oh, it's a great mitzvah to bring a convert in. The sages say when you bring in a convert, it's like giving birth to a newborn creature, number one. Number two, it's like saving an entire world. When you bring one person under the wings of the Shekinah, you have literally saved an entire world. You, this is why Mashiach likened us to him. Because he's the savior of the world. And when we go out and bring people under the wings of the Shekinah, we be too become saviors of worlds. But that wasn't the last thing. This is the last thing. <laughs> My second closing. Once Naomi heard this, she began organizing for Ruth the laws of converts. She said to Ruth, My child, it is not the practice of the daughters of Israel to go to the theaters and the circus of non-Jews. Of course, this was a day and age when all that was licentiousness and they did the Olympics and so on naked. Much like today, actually, come to think of it. <laughs> it says, Ruth answered her, Where you go, I will go. And Naomi said to Ruth, My child, it's not the practice of a Jew to dwell in a house where there's no mezuzah. So there's an insight here that's very instructive. And the question is, well, why is, why is Ruth? The Midrash says here, Naomi told Ruth that certain behaviors were not the practice of Jews. It, and they say it seems surprising that instead of teaching Ruth about specific mitzvot, 
Naomi merely informed her of certain behaviors, that is, customs, traditions that we do. In explanation, Rabbi Shimon Schwab, citing his son, Rabbi Mir Yekum, points to the wording, the blessing of the Torah, in which we say, Asher Bakarbanu, Mikol Tamim Vatanlanu et Torah who selected us from all the peoples and gave us his Torah. This blessing speaks of two stages in the transformation of Jewish people. So important here that you hear this. One was that God selected us from all the peoples, and two, that he gave us his Torah. Clearly, even before God gave us his Torah, even before there was actually mitzvot to follow, he separated us from other people and elevated us to a new status. So it says, this elevation is described in the verse when God says, you shall be for me a most beloved treasure of all people. You should be for me a kingdom of of, a priesthood, a holy minister, a holy nation, Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Even beyond the technical boundaries of the commandments of the Torah, the Jewish people must be a unique nation, a unique nation whose customs and habits reflect the distinction of being a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. And what I'm about to say goes back to the thing that some people say, I'm willing to take the Torah, but not all the customs and traditions. Not all the distinctions. And the answer to that is there's no separation of those two things. Because to be in the people, you've got to be of the people. Right? That's like saying, I'm willing to play on the team. I'm going to follow the, the, the playbook 100%. But y'all have a custom... And, and if you're the Dallas Cowboys, you have a custom of wearing a helmet with a star on it. But the star is pagan. Didn't know that? So I'm going to follow the playbook. But when I wear the helmet, I'm just going to wear a solid orange helmet like the Browns because there's no emblem on it. And I won't be violating, I mean, I won't be violating uh, idolatry. So the Cowboys say, okay, no problem. Our custom is to wear the star. But if you want to come, as long as we're following the playbook, who cares, right? No, you're out of there, buddy. You're a nutcase on top of that. They're coming to take you away, ha-ha. They're coming to take you away. Because who does that? Only somebody who's rebellious and arrogant and idolatrous. You come in, you learned the word Torah yesterday, and now you want to make all new customs. Just think, just ponder the arrogance of that. You want to come in and make everything. You wouldn't even know what's... You wouldn't even know what's what, what, and then we get it all messed up. Yeah. People that reject... I've had so many people that reject... I reject re- rabbinic Judaism and they're, they're wearing a tallit. <laughs> the rabbis were evil. They got a tekel on. They're lighting candles on Shabbat. It's, I mean, you know what I'm saying? So it says here, the Gemara in Sanhedrin 74b rules that during a time of religious persecution, a Jew must forfeit his life, not only to keep the mitzvahs, but even to preserve any Jewish custom that are a mark of his holiness. A potential convert must be taught that upon joining the Jewish people, he will not be, ob- he will, he will not be obligated only to fulfill the mitzvahs. He will become a part of a unique culture of Jewish people a culture that is based upon the people's exceptional status as a beloved treasure and a holy nation. 
Any custom that expresses this unique mission must be adhered to in addition to the formal commandments of the Torah. Naomi therefore shared with Ruth practices of the Jews because there, because these rather customs are rooted in the understanding that the life of a Jew must reflect the holiness of the people. In other words, Torah is important, obviously, but customs are equally important. You say, well, I want to do this. I know all Jews have done this for all time, but I'm going to do something different. That's not being part of the people. That's trying to take the people over. But what do we know? What do we know? Da da da. 